Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds, welcome back. It's Amit. Thank you so much for joining us for this incredibly comprehensive Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Cruise, led by co-captains, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah. We've already had so many awesome stops covering some incredible topics, including normal pregnancy physiology, as well as pregnancy and different types of cardiac diseases like heart failure, coronary disease, arrhythmia, pulmonary hypertension, and aortic disorders. Well, our journey's not done, and we have some great stops lined up for us. Today, we get to learn about the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, directly from Dr. Jennifer Louie, in an episode led by Dr. Celia DeFilippis. For a very special treat, stay tuned towards the end when Dr. Celia DeFilippis shares her perspectives from her ACC.org fifth section article titled Shattering the Glass, where she outlines steps we can take towards shattering the glass and tackling imposter syndrome in improving the representation of women in medicine and cardiology. Friends, we thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to claim free CME credit relevant. Speaker disclosures are available in the episode description. Stay tuned for a special message about cardio obstetrics and women heart from Dr. Sharon Hayes. Hey, Cardio Nerds. I'm Sonia Shah, second year cardiology fellow at UT Southwestern and your host for today's episode of our Cardio Obstetrics series. Today, Dan, Amit, and I are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Celia DeFilippas and Dr. Jennifer Louie to discuss today's topic, Hypertensive Disorders of Pregnancy. Dr. Celia DeFilippas is a third-year cardiology fellow at Columbia University, interested in sex differences in heart failure, as well as the intersection of pregnancy and heart failure. Welcome, Celia. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm also honored to introduce our expert for today's episode, Dr. Jennifer Louie. Dr. Louie is an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania, director of Penn Women's Cardiovascular Health Program, and co-director of the Pregnancy and Heart Disease Program. It's great to have you join us, Dr. Louie. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Louie, what got you interested in cardioobstetrics? Great question. As a resident, I took care of some pregnant women who had cardiomyopathy and valvular heart disease, and I was really fascinated by the changes in physiology and the sometimes hard medical decisions that needed to be made in the absence of a lot of data. And the other thing is at that time, a lot of doctors didn't feel comfortable taking care of this population, but I do think that's changing, and I think this cardioobstetric series is a perfect example of that. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. All right, guys, why don't we jump right into our discussion on hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, which complicate about 5 to 10% of all pregnancies. This term encompasses chronic hypertension, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, eclampsia, and preeclampsia superimposed on chronic hypertension, all of which we are going to discuss during this session. Today, we are going to walk through the pregnancy of a 29-year-old woman who is currently 16 weeks pregnant. This is her first pregnancy, and she's having twins. She has no known medical or surgical history. She presents for a clinic visit, at which time her blood pressure is checked, and it is noted to be 145 over 95 millimeters of mercury. 
Celia, thanks for sharing the story of your patient's case so far. And I can tell you from personal experience that expecting twins can be overwhelming enough in and of itself, even when you have an uncomplicated pregnancy. And shout out to my wife. She is an absolute rock star. Dr. Louis, what are your initial thoughts about our patient's presentation? And which hypertensive disorder would she fall in? Well, I guess my first thought is whether her blood pressure was taken before or after she found out she was having twins, because I certainly think my blood pressure would be elevated too, hearing that information. But in all seriousness, blood pressure measurement technique is just as important during pregnancy as it is outside of pregnancy. So I'd want to know, did she just climb up a flight of stairs? Does the cuff fit properly? Does she have a history of white coat hypertension? We'd want to make sure to recheck her blood pressure to see if it comes down. When it comes to diagnosing a hypertensive disorder in pregnancy, we ideally want to see elevated blood pressure on two occasions, at least four hours apart. That might mean two different clinic visits or a pattern of high blood pressure when measured at home. And when I think about what category of hypertensive disorder she has, I ask myself three questions. First, what is the blood pressure? Second, when during pregnancy is it being diagnosed? And third, are there any warning signs for preeclampsia? First, in terms of what is her blood pressure, the definition of high blood pressure in pregnancy is a little bit different than what we think about outside of pregnancy. So ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, defines hypertension as a blood pressure greater than 140 over 90. And this would be considered stage 2 hypertension according to our recent ACC AHA guidelines. There has been some research looking into whether women with stage 1 hypertension greater than 130 may be at greater risk of preeclampsia or other obstetric outcomes, and whether these women may benefit from preventative therapies, but it's still an active area of research. So for right now, we'll stick to a blood pressure cutoff of 140 over 90. In terms of the second question, when during pregnancy is it being diagnosed, there's two general buckets, high blood pressure before 20 weeks gestation, which is considered chronic hypertension, versus after 20 weeks gestation, which is usually from a pregnancy-induced process such as preeclampsia or gestational hypertension. Now, as you can imagine, the 20-week mark may not be perfect, but it can help guide clinical management. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that What can make the diagnosis of hypertension challenging is that we know SVR decreases in early pregnancy. As a result, blood pressure is often lower in the first two trimesters before increasing back to baseline in the third trimester. So some women with chronic hypertension, even before pregnancy, will have normalization of blood pressure early on. And the third thing that we want to think about is, are there any warning signs for preeclampsia? Preeclampsia is diagnosed in the setting of high blood pressure, usually after 20 weeks, plus proteinuria or end-organ dysfunction. And end-organ dysfunction most commonly can include thrombocytopenia, transaminitis, persistent right upper quadrant pain, headache, pulmonary edema, symptoms and signs that are not explained by other causes. I'd also want to point out, I thought this was hard for me, I didn't realize this when I was first starting out, is that severe hypertension in and of itself, so a blood pressure greater than 160 over 110, is sufficient in the absence of other findings to make the diagnosis of preeclampsia. For our patient, she's currently 16 weeks pregnant, and her blood pressure is 145 over 95. So if her blood pressure remains high, I suspect she has chronic hypertension. Dr. Louie, I love that breakdown. Thank you. So her elevated blood pressure at less than 20 weeks indicates chronic hypertension and an elevated blood pressure at greater than 20 weeks without pre-existing hypertension indicates gestational hypertension. That's quite the fine line. Is there anything special about the 20-week mark? 
Yeah, so the 20-week mark is when we think that pregnancy-induced processes actually begin. If we think that someone has gestational hypertension or is developing early signs of preeclampsia, we certainly want to follow them more closely just because of the impact that may have for both the mother's health as well as the fetal well-being. We would want to do more testing in terms of looking at their urine, monitor their labs, monitor their blood pressure closely, as well as the growth and health of the baby as well. Gotcha, Dr. Louise. So the 20-week mark makes sense, but why are we so specific about making this distinction? Is there a difference between chronic hypertension versus gestational hypertension when it comes to how you follow up the patient or their prognosis, either for the baby or for the mother? Yeah, that's a really great question. We know that women with chronic hypertension during pregnancy are at increased risk of having adverse maternal and fetal outcomes. So they're more likely to develop prematurely, have a C-section, have an adverse cardiovascular event such as an MI or stroke, although luckily that's still pretty uncommon. And we know that women with preeclampsia or gestational hypertension are also at risk, but in some cases are at even higher risk. And when a woman develops preeclampsia, we often learn that the treatment is delivery. And so because end organ damage can often progress really quickly, close monitoring is really necessary. And oftentimes these women may need to be delivered prematurely if they develop preeclampsia before term. Quick question here. In terms of the pathophys of this situation, as we said, SVR drops early on in pregnancy. And so even patients with chronic hypertension may have lower blood pressures than normally. Is there something about the 20-week mark that lets us know that it's the pregnancy causing the hypertension in somebody who doesn't have a hypertensive history? Or is it just that this patient may or may not have developed hypertension and it happens to be that it's developing now? We label it, therefore, as gestational hypertension at this point, just because it occurred at this time. Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm not sure we know the exact answer to that. We think the process that causes gestational hypertension and preeclampsia is a result of how the spiral arteries actually implant into the uterus. And there are a whole host of local factors that lead to an increase in blood pressure later on in pregnancy. But the exact mechanism of how these conditions develop isn't completely clear. And I think that's why people fixate on the 20-week mark, that it takes that amount of time for the process to actually happen and then manifest itself in mom. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you, everyone, for that great summary. Getting back to our case, Miss A returns one week later with a diary of her blood pressure measurements that she has been taking every day. And her measurements are consistently reading 155 to 165 for her systolic measurements and 90s for the diastolic measurements. And her repeat clinic blood pressure is 155 systolic over 100 diastolic millimeters of mercury. At this point, given that she is still less than 20 weeks gestation, it seems she meets criteria for a new diagnosis of chronic hypertension, which has already been alluded to. Still, I am concerned because she has multiple risk factors for superimposed preeclampsia later in her pregnancy, including that this is her first pregnancy, her multiparity, and now her chronic hypertension. That is definitely a lot of risk factors for preeclampsia. Recognizing that she's higher risk, I wonder if there's a way to avoid it. Dr. Louie, does treatment of her hypertension at this point reduce her risk of developing preeclampsia later on in her pregnancy? Yeah, so we'll we'll talk about that. The first thing is I I appreciate you bringing up that you're concerned about superimposed preeclampsia because I think that's a term that hasn't come up already. Women with chronic hypertension are at greater risk of developing preeclampsia, and we often call that preeclampsia that's superimposed on chronic hypertension. 
And I think the other thing to note is that we talked about chronic hypertension being diagnosed before 20 weeks gestation, realizing that 20 weeks isn't perfect. Ideally, these women would be diagnosed before pregnancy, but we know that a lot of young, otherwise healthy women aren't necessarily seeing their doctors regularly before they get pregnant and so may not come into pregnancy with that diagnosis already. I agree that she has chronic hypertension, especially with those blood pressures. The question is, what can we do to prevent her from developing superimposed preeclampsia? There have been a number of studies over the years looking at when to treat hypertension in pregnancy and whether earlier treatment can help prevent preeclampsia. One of those studies was called the CHIPS trial, which was published in 2015, and it compared treating blood pressure with tight control, so a diastolic blood pressure less than 100, versus less tight control with a diastolic blood pressure less than 85. They found that treating women with tight blood pressure control decreased the rate of severe hypertension, but overall didn't lower the risk of preeclampsia. So in general, blood pressure treatment is reserved for women with severe hypertension with a blood pressure greater than 160 over 110. It's important to keep in mind that the patient population that are enrolled in these studies may be slightly different from the patient population that we see in our cardiology clinic who may have other risk factors or comorbidities where it may be more appropriate to treat them to a lower blood pressure goal such as women who already have evidence of end-organ dysfunction, such as left ventricular hypertrophy, who have cardiomyopathy or have kidney disease. Thank you so much, Dr. Louie. And I love your point regarding emphasizing primary care for women in the prenatal period, which I think is so important for our audience and why this series is so important, because ideally, a lot of these conditions come down to prevention and addressing potential cardioobstetrics issues before they reach the cardioobstetric specialist. Is there anything we can do to help modify Ms. A's risk at this point? Yeah, so I think besides following her closely, the other thing that we can think about doing is prescribing her a baby aspirin. Aspirin use in pregnancy, a little bit different from aspirin use outside of pregnancy. There's evidence that taking an aspirin during the second and third trimesters can decrease the risk of developing preeclampsia, especially preterm preeclampsia among women at risk. And it's usually prescribed between 12 and 28 weeks of gestation with some evidence suggesting that starting before 16 weeks has the greatest benefit. Luckily, aspirin use at this dosing is considered very safe for fetal outcomes and for mom, and so it's very well tolerated. And both ACOG and the USPSTF recommend starting aspirin in women with at least one major risk factor or two moderate risk factors. So in our general practice at Penn, we usually recommend starting a baby aspirin at the beginning of the second trimester at 13 weeks. So I feel like we as cardiologists are always advocating for a healthy diet and regular exercise for both primary and secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease. In addition to aspirin, is there any role for diet and exercise modification in hypertensive during pregnancy? That's a good question, Celia. So there is some limited evidence that a structured exercise program in pregnancy can reduce gestational weight gain and the risk of developing hypertensive disorders and other pregnancy complications but I do think more research is needed in this area. I do have to admit that given how many women feel during pregnancy and the dramatic physical changes that they go through, I discuss healthy weight gain and physical activity during pregnancy, but many women feel more ready to make healthy changes after delivery. 
That makes a lot of sense. In terms of management of our patient's hypertension and in your clinical practice, what is your blood pressure threshold for starting antihypertensive therapies in patients who are pregnant? And what are your goal blood pressures for those patients? For newly diagnosed hypertension in pregnancy, the guidelines recommend a threshold for treatment of 160 over 110 which is a little bit higher than what we normally think about outside of pregnancy. In general, I would say my threshold is usually closer to 150 to 160 over 100 to 110, with the caveat being if women have other risk factors or known cardiovascular disease, I'm definitely targeting a blood pressure goal closer to 120 to 130 over 80s. And the reason why we actually tolerate a higher blood pressure during pregnancy is because we want to avoid what we call uteroplacental hypoperfusion, where the uterus isn't getting enough blood, and that may impact the growth of the baby. So, you know, you're getting ready to start discussing with your patient that they've got elevated blood pressure and you're thinking about starting an agent. Is there a delicate way that you bring up blood pressure? It's one of these things that the patients don't even feel it. And now you have to bring in this complication that's going on during their pregnancy. Is there a way that you gently break that kind of news or approach that treatment plan with the patient? Yeah, I think that's a really great question because there's a lot of anxiety around what does it mean that I now have high blood pressure? What does it mean that you want me to start taking a medicine? Is it safe during pregnancy? Is it safe for my baby? So I think all women have those questions when they first hear this news. I talk about what the risks are to mom and what the risks are to baby if the blood pressure is persistently high and isn't treated. And I think in terms of gently breaking that news, I think there's a couple of different ways to do it. I generally just refer to the fact that there's an increased risk of developing preeclampsia, of the baby being born early, and of mom having other complications. So anything that we can do to reduce that risk is generally preferable, but I don't really get into some of the nitty gritty of what some of those other complications might look like. That's super helpful. I think it's also a great time to review the antihypertensive medications that are safe during pregnancy. Our patient is understandably quite wary of the risk to her baby. So Dr. Louie, what are your first and second line antihypertensive agents for patients with hypertension during pregnancy? Our first line agents for antihypertensives are labetalol and nifedipine. And I would say our second line agent most commonly is hydralazine. I'm sure you've heard a lot about methyl dopa. And in fact, when I took the cardiology boards a few years ago, I was definitely tested on that as well. So methyl dopa is very safe during pregnancy, but it also tends to be less effective and its side effects are not usually well tolerated. It can cause both depression and fatigue. So it is used, but less commonly. The other thing is that if someone comes into pregnancy with high blood pressure that's well controlled on other medicines that are less commonly used in pregnancy, such as amlodipine or hydrochlorothiazide, I actually do continue them on those medications because the limited evidence that we have suggests that they are safe. We just don't have as much experience using them during pregnancy. So we talked about medications that are safe to use in pregnancy, and it's also important to think about the medications we want to avoid during pregnancy, either medications we don't want to start or medications we want to stop if a woman is on them and then finds out that she's pregnant. And the most important classes to think about are ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and aldosterone antagonists. Beta blocker use is considered generally safe in pregnancy if mom needs them for her own health. 
But there is some evidence that atenolol may be slightly worse for fetal outcomes compared to some of the other beta blockers. So we generally avoid using atenolol as well. That's really helpful. Thank you for that summary, Dr. Louie. So for our patient, Ms. A, she started on nifedipine and is continuing to monitor her blood pressure throughout her pregnancy at home, as well as through repeated office follow-up. At 36 weeks, she schedules an urgent visit because she's concerned her blood pressure this morning was 180 over 100, and she has a severe headache. Pregnancy or no pregnancy, that's concerning for any patient. The alarm bells are definitely going off. Dr. Louie, what's on your mind at this point, and what is your differential diagnosis and approach to this patient? Any additional testing necessary? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm definitely concerned both about how high her blood pressure is and the fact that she has a severe headache. Like we talked about before, preeclampsia can be diagnosed in the setting of just severe hypertension alone. And the fact that she has a severe headache suggests that she may have evidence of end organ damage and that potentially she's at risk for developing a seizure, which would be the diagnosis of eclampsia. That would be the number one thing that I'm most concerned about. In terms of additional testing, I think the first thing we need to do is actually lower her blood pressure sooner rather than later. And so the first thing is getting her short-acting nifedipine or even IV agents to lower her blood pressure is really important. But I think we also need to check those labs that we talked about that can look for other signs of end organ damage. So see what her platelets are, check her LFTs, certainly think about checking her urine for protein, but to be completely honest, it's not actually going to change our management at that point. And if she develops any other symptoms, such as chest pain or shortness of breath, making sure that we get an EKG and potentially an echocardiogram. I wanted to emphasize in there is it sounds like for our patients, it's really important that we as providers recommend that they monitor their blood pressures at home very carefully and watch out for some of these symptoms. I imagine a pregnant woman who has a headache may not think much of it unless they're warned beforehand that this could be a sign of end organ damage and a more serious process going on. So given Ms. A's severe headache and elevated blood pressure, a point-of-care urinalysis was checked in the office that was notable for 2-plus protein, and she was referred to the emergency room for urgent evaluation. Her initial evaluation in the ER did not show thrombocytopenia, but did show that her creatinine was elevated from baseline as well as some mild transaminitis. A chest x-ray that was performed did show some pulmonary congestion as well. Given all of this, she was given intravenous labetalol and hydralazine for acute onset severe hypertension, as well as magnesium sulfate for seizure prophylaxis to prevent eclampsia given her clinical picture. Fortunately, she was successfully managed with these IV medications and delivered two healthy baby girls. What should we be on the lookout for in the postpartum period, aka the fourth trimester? I'm glad that she was able to get immediate care when she developed those severe levels of high blood pressure and the severe headache, because we know that acting quickly is critically important to help protect mom's health as well as baby's health. Now that she's delivered, we need to think about what is she at risk for in the days and weeks following delivery, especially as she goes home. And I think one important thing to remember is that blood pressure can continue to be elevated even after delivery. So although delivery is the treatment for preeclampsia, the pathophysiologic changes are still occurring. And actually, blood pressure tends to go down a little bit right after delivery. And perhaps that's due to the volume changes and sudden blood loss. And it actually peaks three to five days after delivery. 
And for many women with preeclampsia, whether it's superimposed on chronic hypertension or not, the blood pressure can actually be elevated for weeks to months after delivery. So some of these women will actually need to go home on blood pressure medication. Dr. Louie, the time course of blood pressure that you're describing is really interesting and not necessarily intuitive, especially because it's been hammered home that the delivery is the cure. But remembering that it's the cure for preeclampsia and not hypertension is very valuable. Now that our patient has a history of preeclampsia, what would you advise her about the risk of having recurrent hypertensive disorders, both in terms of future pregnancies and her risk in terms of chronic hypertension in the future? Yeah, so those are all great questions. And I think the postpartum period is a perfect time to think about risk reduction, both for what we call interconception health, so health between pregnancies, as well as long-term cardiovascular health. So the first thing is we want to make sure before she leaves the hospital that she has good follow-up with her OB. It used to be that women were recommended to have follow-up at six weeks after delivery, but as you can imagine, a lot actually happens during those six weeks. And if someone has had a pregnancy complication, they may be readmitted to the hospital before then if their blood pressure actually spikes. And so for many of these women, they should actually get a blood pressure check within a few days of leaving the hospital to make sure that their blood pressure is under good control. And that could mean coming into clinic but it could also mean monitoring the blood pressure at home. And there's an increasing number of telemedicine programs that actually help enroll and engage women in blood pressure monitoring during this really vulnerable time. The second thing I'd want to think about is making sure that she's plugged into follow-up care a little bit further out from delivery. So she may have that OB follow-up within the first two to three weeks, but I think it's also really important to have follow-up closer to six weeks to see if her blood pressure is either resolving or resolving closer to baseline. Now remember, this woman was diagnosed with chronic hypertension in the first half of her pregnancy, and so she may actually need ongoing blood pressure medications to control her blood pressure moving forward. In terms of thinking about what the risk is to her for future pregnancies, we know that having preeclampsia, especially if it's preterm preeclampsia, which technically she does have because she delivered before 37 weeks, is associated with repeat preeclampsia in future pregnancies. And so I really try to focus on that education is important. A lot of women feel very nervous and scared about getting pregnant again, especially after they've just had a complicated pregnancy. But the more that we know, the more we can do to actually make sure that they're healthy going into their next pregnancy, if that's something that they're thinking about. So I think number one, we want to make sure that her blood pressure is well controlled, whether that's on medication or just with lifestyle changes. So thinking about what does your diet look like in the postpartum period? What is your salt intake like? Are you exercising? And then the other thing I think is really important is thinking about whether women are losing the weight that they gain during pregnancy, which can be hard for a lot of women, but can certainly help with normalization of their blood pressure. I think the other thing that's really important, and it may be a little bit too early to talk about long-term risk at the six-week follow-up appointment, but especially as you see these women in clinic over time, is talking about the fact that preeclampsia is a risk factor for future heart disease. We know that women with preeclampsia are at a twofold higher risk of developing stroke, ischemic heart disease, heart failure, and even dying from cardiovascular causes. And so thinking about all of those lifestyle changes that we talked about already, but also making sure that they have their cholesterol screening up to date and their diabetes screening up to date is also really important. So Dr. Louie, I have a follow-up question about that. 
When we're seeing these patients in the postpartum period, how does the history of either hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or known prior chronic hypertension influence your discussion with the maternal fetal medicine team about the appropriate methods of contraception for these patients? So for women who continue to be hypertensive, especially if they need medication, I usually advise against using combined oral contraceptive pills just because we know that the estrogen component can actually increase the blood pressure and increase the risk of cardiovascular events or venous thromboembolism in women who have high blood pressure or other cardiovascular disease. So I think for this woman, if she continues to have high blood pressure, either using a progesterone-only pill or even thinking about an IUD, which is probably the contraceptive choice we recommend most frequently to women with heart disease, would make a lot of sense. That being said, we also need to think about when and if she wants to have more children, because an IUD may not make a lot of sense if she wants to try to get pregnant within the next year or two. So Dr. Liu, you mentioned that women with a history of preeclampsia have an increased risk of future cardiovascular events, including stroke, coronary disease, and heart failure. As a cardiologist, when you see these women in your clinic, how do you monitor or screen these patients for cardiovascular disease? Yeah, so I think the first step is making sure they're up to date with cardiovascular screening for their risk factors, like we talked about, such as high cholesterol, diabetes, thinking about whether they're smoking. Some women who are smokers will actually stop during pregnancy, but start again in the postpartum period. Are they exercising? Are they losing weight? I usually use the AHA's Life Simple 7 as a rubric to sort of talk about healthy lifestyle for these women. It's also a really great time to think about other risk-enhancing factors such as family history, autoimmune diseases, or other things as well. In terms of screening in the years after delivery, I think it's just making sure that women are trying to follow a healthy lifestyle. And as they get older, thinking about whether there's other testing that we want to do to help stratify their risk. I think one question that comes up is whether doing a calcium score can be helpful in this population to detect early cardiovascular risk. I think that can be helpful if it actually would change our management. And so I usually start thinking about a calcium score closer to 45 or 50 years old, especially if someone has other risk factors that put them in that intermediate range of when I would think about starting preventative therapies like a statin. I think for women much younger than that, the benefit is less likely to be there in terms of changing what we actually do. Dr. Louie, is there ever a point where the patient's pregnancy history becomes less relevant? So for example, now they're seeing you later in life, they're moderate or high risk based on pulled cord equations. Does their pregnancy history become less relevant in those settings? Like you're already considering a high intensity statin for whatever reason, and then you may ask less questions about it? Or do you always ask questions because there are gems and pearls that you'll find about the patient's cardiovascular risk that will help enhance or modify risk later down the road? That's a really interesting question. I have actually started incorporating pregnancy history into all of my new patient visits. First of all, because I feel like if I do something all of the time, then I'm less likely to forget to do it. And so asking about number of pregnancies, pregnancy complications, such as hypertensive disorders, 
gestational diabetes, and also preterm birth, which is an independent risk factor for future cardiovascular disease, all really important. And there's actually recent research that suggests that pregnancy complications not only increase cardiovascular risk in the middle-aged population, but also in the postmenopausal population as well. I think if women don't have a lot of other risk factors that may not make their 10-year risk of ASCVD that high, I do think knowing their history of potential pregnancy complications can actually impact your decision to treat them. Dr. Liu, I'm so glad you're going over this. And actually, my approach for history taking for women completely changed after we did a case episode from UPMC with Natalie Stokes, Kelly Shapiro, and Agnes Coxo. And it was a patient. It was actually a very similar case. It was a patient who had developed preeclampsia. And we give them a case template just to organize a discussion. And they very gently added to the past medical history and surgical history, a full OB history. And so I learned from them the importance of going through this cardio-OB history, or rather this obstetrics history. And so just a couple of weeks ago, I had a patient that I saw in clinic who was on the order of 50 or 60 years old and with a really severe family history of premature CAD. And she herself had already had a stent to the one of her vessels in recent years. But really, she had no other risk from the traditional risk factors, right? No hypertension, hyperlipidemia, obesity, etc. And so I thought about what I learned in that UPMC episode, and I started asking her about her OB history. And so she had preterm labor for one pregnancy, a spontaneous late-term uh, trimester abortion for another pregnancy. And she also also had a bilateral ophorectomy when she was about 25 years or so, and for one reason or another, stopped her hormone replacement very early. So she was somebody who functionally had early ovarian failure, premature menopause, and all these pregnancy-related adverse outcomes, and really completely changed how we approached how aggressive we were with our prevention moving forward. Just a quick question. What do you think is the relationship between preeclampsia and future cardiovascular risk? Do you think preeclampsia itself somehow alters the pathobiology of risk down the road? Or do you think preeclampsia itself is a manifestation of risk that's already there? Yeah, I think that's the million dollar question. And we often talk about is pregnancy just a stress test for women who have predisposing risk? I don't think we know the answer to that question, but I'm hoping with current research that we'll have greater understanding within the next five to 10 years. There have been some really interesting mediation analyses looking at what is the proportion of cardiovascular risk following a pregnancy complicated by preeclampsia that's due to traditional risk factors such as chronic hypertension or obesity. And although the numbers vary, it looks like it may be in the 50 to 60% range. And so what that means is that we know that preeclampsia predisposes to an earlier development of chronic hypertension. We know that women with preeclampsia are more likely to have obesity, and perhaps it is those risk factors that lead to early cardiovascular disease. On the other hand, we know that preeclampsia actually is likely caused by some degree of endothelial dysfunction, which we know persists after delivery for anywhere between 1 and 10 years. These women have been studied. And so it is quite plausible that this persistent endothelial dysfunction may also be the mechanism by which premature cardiovascular disease can develop. So I think it's too early to tell. It's such a fascinating area and clearly an area of great need. And so it's great that you and, and Sonia and Celia and other leaders in the field are going to be studying this down the road. But 
Getting back to our discussion, so our patient, we didn't talk about this earlier, but our patient is a black woman. How does that factor into her risk of developing a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy and her prognosis moving forward? So we know that women of African ancestry are more likely to develop preeclampsia and are more likely to have adverse outcomes as a result of preeclampsia. I think it's a really interesting question why that is. A lot of people have speculated that Black women are more likely to enter into pregnancy with more chronic medical conditions, including chronic hypertension and diabetes. And I think that is true, but it probably explains only a small proportion of that increased risk of preeclampsia. I do think that social determinants of health play a really important role. And so thinking about the effect of chronic stress, implicit bias, racism, access to care, relationship to physicians and medical providers are all really important. And I think that association is really complicated. It sounds like there are so many different factors and things that are not necessarily known. And, and then there's questions about causation versus association. But I guess at this point, with what we do know is there are many different areas that we can do better on to help patients like our patient here have a better outcome. And Dr. Louis, for our young, eager beaver fellows like us who periodically see these young women in our cardiology clinics, what questions do you think are key to elucidate when we are assessing our patients' cardiovascular risk? Yeah, I think we touched upon some of these, but in summary, I think the first thing is actually asking the questions of what their pregnancy history is, if they've been pregnant, how many times, if they've had any pregnancy complications, thinking about what are their lifestyle risk factors, and also thinking about what their future goals are and if they're thinking about getting pregnant again. And I think that's something in cardiology clinic we're not as accustomed to asking about. But in all of my reproductive aged women, I ask about what is their current contraception use? What are their current plans in terms of getting pregnant? Just because I want to make sure that they're on the right medications, they're on safe medications. If they're not on medications, maybe they should be. And also to provide a little bit of counseling in terms of what risks may be present in a future pregnancy, because I don't think that women hear that enough from their non-OB doctors. I think those are all really great points, because I think if we don't ask the questions, then we don't know the answers and more information is power to help us provide the best advice going forward and the best risk assessments for our patients. So I know for me, it's been really wonderful to participate in this series about cardioobstetrics and even realizing that some of my young patients with heart failure, for example, are not on birth control or people are not thinking about their risk of recurrent pregnancy. And that intersection between heart failure and pregnancy for me is a focus both from a research and clinical standpoint moving forward in my career. So I'd love to hear from Dr. Louie what makes your heart flutter about cardioobstetrics and how that's driven you forward in your career so far. Hopefully my heart isn't fluttering too much, but it is true. I do get very excited about this. I think the thing that makes me so excited about cardioobstetrics is being able to care for women during a life transition that can be very exciting for them and their families, but also really stressful and anxiety provoking. And I think women feel so relieved when they know that their care team is dedicated to taking care of women with heart disease or cardiovascular risk factors while they're pregnant, just because that's not something that they hear a lot about. And so being able to provide that really individualized care and very specialized care gives me a lot of satisfaction and I think really helps put women at ease. 
Well, I can't even begin to express how much I'm enjoying this conversation. I'm taking so much away from this. And I would certainly emphasize Sonia's earlier point that when we think about cardio obstetrics, it is a super specialized area and we need absolute experts like Dr. Louis to dedicate themselves. But the moments to intervene are opportunities that we all have, right? As primary care doctors, general non-invasive cardiologists, even the cardiologists specializing in valvular heart disease, right? If you're taking care of any woman of childbearing age or thinking about risk in an older woman who may have had pregnancy-related adverse outcomes in the past. So I'm taking so much away from this discussion. But before we close, I'd like to recognize Celia's wonderful ACC Fit article titled Shattering the Glass. And I was going to say it was so well written, but when I learned that Celia has written for the Washington Post, I, I can totally understand why. But this article especially resonated with our recent inauguration of the first Black and Asian Indian woman vice president. So Celia, would you share with us where the glass metaphor comes from, what it means to you, and the steps you so beautifully outlined towards shattering the glass and tackling imposter syndrome? Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed writing this article, and especially in light of the election results. And so for me, I learned that there was the first discussion of not the specific term glass ceiling, but really an impenetrable crystal vault that was described in 1839 by a French feminist, George Sand. But really the term specifically glass ceiling emerged in 1978 to describe patterns of discriminatory promotion. And as we know, the term glass ceiling has been more broadly used really across areas with respect to leadership positions, whether it's in business, the political arena or the field of medicine. And for me, I think in the last AHA sessions, they actually had a specific talk focused on imposter syndrome. uh, And it was really interesting and in some ways validating to hear how many women at various points of training still continue to experience imposter syndrome and how we can tackle it. And I think particularly as we are going through our stages of training and when we become early career physicians and are more advanced in our career, I think thinking about how we can continue to support the pipeline of women in medicine, supporting medical students, residents, as well as even collaborating with other women fellows in our own program and really reflecting on the diversity of our teams, the diversity of the writing groups on our manuscripts, and just continuing to promote a community of women. And for me, I think things like Twitter and social media have really helped me connect with other women in cardiology and medicine more broadly to recognize their amazing accomplishments, which I think has provided me with a lot of hope and excitement for things that I may be able to do in my career. And similarly, you know, I think trying to collaborate with other young women in cardiology across training programs and form teams of women that can continue to bring each other up and move forward. And so I think that I appreciate you giving me the chance to talk about this article. And it's definitely something that I'm passionate about and think a lot about. So thank you again. Gosh, Celia, I just love that incredibly powerful and just beautiful metaphor. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I could not agree with you more. Dr. Louie, just hearing that just made me think of you. We feel so fortunate to have you join us today. So thank you so much. Thank you all so much, not only for the opportunity to be here, but this entire focus on cardio obstetrics. 
Like I said before, one of the things that really motivated me to learn more about this field was seeing how so many cardiologists were scared of taking care of these women. And I think they deserve better. And so I think the opportunity to learn more about the field, both from a clinical perspective and a personal perspective and a research perspective is really inspiring. So thank you for all that you do. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today and for educating us on hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And for our listeners out there who are interested in learning more about hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or reading Celia's incredibly inspiring article, check out our episode show notes on the CardioNerds website. tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shaw, and brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to Cardio Nerds. With our partner, Women Heart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is Women Heart? It was founded by and for women. Women Heart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. Women Heart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of Women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease, Each year, I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. Women Heart's Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how under-emphasized cardioobstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own cardio-OB as a concept and important sub-subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, it may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilized what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected, better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women, whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking, I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies, so why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society 
become mothers at some point in their life. And presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, the role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to CardioB, more attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease. And as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series? Raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio-OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the cardio-OB heart team. All you cardio nerds need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you, either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and Women Heart champions and many of my patients. Be open to those insights and learning. To learn more about Women Heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so, or to offer to volunteer or donate, go to womenheart.org. Thank you and enjoy the Cardio OB series. I also realized in the beginning we said she had twins and now she's delivering a baby girl. So maybe we can say <laughs> two, two <laughs> baby, <laughs> baby girls. That's a great point. <laughs> great Sonia, point. this is why you're carrying this thing. Yeah. Now you're becoming a producer. <laughs> like what happened to the yeah. other one? <laughs> this is uh guys, this is the Swiss cheese model. That was a near miss. <laughs>